you would turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 52 this morning. The next few weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, we're looking at the concluding sections of the Gospel of Mark. As we said last week, the first half of Mark focuses on, focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee that lasted a couple of years. Then, we saw Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in the middle section of Mark that lasted a couple of months or weeks. Then the last few chapters show Jesus' ministry, public ministry in Jerusalem that lasted at least a few days. But now this section we're looking at focuses on the last 24 hours. So Mark is leading us to slow down and not rush over this part, but to look at Jesus and to look at what his life was all about as we look at the last 24 hours of his life on earth, his journey to the cross. So that's what uh, I hope that we uh, can do as we look at these uh, passages the next few weeks. Let me read today Mark 14, beginning at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, that is, this is Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So if you watched the Super Bowl last month, you might have noticed some of the advertisements that companies spend millions of dollars to develop and produce and display to the world. Uh, one of the advertisements was for the new Google Pixel phone. Uh, and one business school actually publishes an annual ranking of Super Bowl ads, and they awarded this year's prize to this ad. So here's how the ad began. For years, our phones have captured our memories. Now it's time to fix them. So the ad went on to describe how the new Google Pixel smartphone can fix your photos with the magic eraser feature. You can get rid of distracting clutter in the background, awkward poses that make you cringe, even people you don't like anymore, <laughs> that you don't wish to be reminded of. And with the photo unblur feature, you can highlight the pleasant and happy and comfortable memories. Now, why would Google spend $18 million, that's what it cost, it was a 90 second ad, to highlight these particular features? Because people really want these features. Right? We want to erase the memories that make us look bad or feel bad, and we want to highlight the memories that make us look good and feel good. We want to rewrite the past or reimagine the past and minimize messy, painful, awkward, and embarrassing moments. Now, this isn't just something that people have started doing with the advent of smartphones. Human beings have always had a tendency to do this, to rewrite or reimagine the past in a way that suits our self-image in the present. Right? When we tell stories, we tend to highlight the parts that make us look good, and we tend to minimize the parts that make us look bad. Uh, I was a history major in college, and one of the things that historians are trained to do when evaluating primary sources is to ask, who was writing this document? What perspective was it written from? And how much is this person just telling the truth about what really happened, and how much are they putting a spin on it? to make themselves and their tribe or their side look good, and the other side look bad. Well, here's the thing about this passage that we've just read. It's not spin. It hasn't been fixed. It's messy and painful and awkward and embarrassing. Look at how it describes the disciples. The future leaders of the worldwide church, the twelve, the inner circle. Verse 23 says, they all drank from the cup that Jesus gave them, representing the new covenant in his blood. And verse 31 says, they all said the same thing, if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And then, just a couple hours later, in verse 50, it says, they all fled. They turned tail and ran. How flaky can you get? <laughs> One moment you're saying, pledging your undying loyalty to your beloved teacher and leader, and that later, that same night, you're ditching him. And you're gone. 
doesn't describe the disciples in a particularly flattering way. It doesn't erase an awkward and embarrassing moment. But also consider how this passage describes Jesus. Verse 32 to 36 especially describes Jesus as suffering emotionally, greatly distressed and troubled, very sorrowful, even to death. He falls on the ground and pleads for a way out. Now many of us, uh, modern people, especially when we've been influenced by Western culture, uh, were attracted by Jesus' sort of rawness and emotional vulnerability here. We think, wow, that's authentic. He's real. He's real. Uh, but many Christians in the ancient world actually felt differently about these verses. They really struggled with these verses because they wondered, if Jesus was fully God, how could God feel all these emotions? And uh, many people in the ancient world were influenced by uh, a philosophical group called the Stoics, right? We still have that word, the Stoic ideal. And the Stoic ideal was basically uh, to remain calm and cool and collected no matter what happens. Because everything happens for a reason, and you don't know exactly what that reason is, but you should just accept whatever comes to you because it's your fate. But Jesus, why are we behaving like a Stoic here? Verses 32 to 36. He wasn't just calmly accepting his fate. He was really wrestling. Pleading, take this cup away from me. You see, a Christian who was living in the ancient world would not have made up this passage. These stories were recorded for one reason, because they actually happened. And they weren't doctored up after the fact. Jesus' disciples were convinced that they shouldn't try to erase the messy and awkward and embarrassing moments that made them look bad. Amen. And this is one important reason why you can trust what the Bible says. Because throughout the Bible, the Bible doesn't gloss over the flaws of its main characters. It doesn't present us with just what we would imagine or make up on our own. The Bible doesn't give us a sanitized version of history with all the unpleasant things magically erased. It shows us reality, unvarnished, unfixed. So I want to focus on two themes this morning. First, flaky disciples, and second, a faithful Savior. I want to look at each of these in turn because these are the two main themes that run through the whole passage. So first, the flaky disciples. Now, the earlier sections of this chapter, if you heard last week, they focus especially on Judas, who betrayed Jesus. But here, beginning in verse 27, we see that among Jesus' disciples, it wasn't just Judas who would turn against Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples, you will all fall away. You'll all scatter just like sheep would if they see their shepherd getting attacked. And in verse 29, Peter immediately objects, uh, and he says, Oh, sure, all those other guys might run away, but I won't. I mean, imagine what all the other guys are thinking there. Right? When they hear Peter, they're sort of one leader of the pack, saying, Oh, yeah, they'll all diss you, but I won't. I'll stand by your side no matter what. And Jesus says to Peter, You're not going to make it even through the next 12 hours. And Peter still doesn't listen. He still thinks he knows better than Jesus. 
And he says, even more loudly, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And all the other disciples chime in and say, yes, 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 us too. You see, all of Jesus' disciples were highly confident in their own ability to remain loyal to Jesus no matter what happened, no matter how much pressure came upon them. They said, we can do this. You can count on us. We're your biggest fans. We're your most loyal followers. We're strong and courageous. We're not like Judas. But their self-confidence did not carry them very far. Verse 32, Jesus says to them, just wait here while I pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John, sort of the leaders of the twelve, a little further ahead, and he says, remain here and watch. Now, back in chapter 13, we looked at that long speech of Jesus about what's going to happen in the future, and how he ended that speech was three times saying, watch, or stay awake. He encourages his disciples, stay alert spiritually. And here, in the garden, he says the same thing three times in verse uh, 34, verse 37, verse 38. Three times he tells his disciples, watch or stay awake. Now think about it. All Jesus was asking them to do was stay awake and be in prayer for an hour or so. So they're not facing any hostile enemies. They're not isolated from each other. They're still together as a group. They can all help each other out, right? If you've got a group of you, and you're trying to stay awake, and it's a little late at night, you can walk around and stretch. You can talk to each other. You could sing hymns like they did in verse 26. They could have done all kinds of things to stay awake, and stay focused, help each other out, pat, pat each other on the back when one guy's drifting off. But they were all tired. And it was getting late at night, probably close to midnight. They had all eaten a big meal. Passover was the biggest meal of the year. The meal included some wine. And so they were all feeling tired. And three times, verse 37, verse 40, and verse 41, not just once, but three times, they drift off to sleep. Not just some of them, but all of them. So it's not surprising that when things really heat up in verses 43 and following, when Judas shows up with an armed crowd, verse 50 says they all turned tail and ran. They all left him and fled. At verse 51 and 52, Mark mentions another follower of Jesus, a young man who followed him, who presumably was not one of the twelve who ran away and left his cloak behind. Now people have wondered who this guy was. He's only mentioned in Mark's gospel nowhere else. Uh, perhaps he was Mark himself. Some people wonder if Mark was uh, sort of giving us a clue uh, that he was there at this point, and yet he ran away like everybody else. Perhaps it was Lazarus, whom Jesus had recently raised from the dead. But whoever he was, this guy ran away just like all the rest of them. Uh, there's a verse in uh, the Old Testament prophet Amos where he describes a day of darkness, and the day of God's judgment is a day when even the bravest of warriors will run away naked. And that's what we see here. Even the bravest one turns tail and runs. Now what should we take away from these flaky disciples? I think three practical applications. Number one, we're not as spiritually strong as we think. 
And therefore, it's always a mistake to boast about our own courage and our own conviction and our own ability to endure no matter how much pressure we're going to face. Proverbs says, pride goes before a fall. That's what we see here. The disciples are very confident in themselves and in their own ability to stay loyal to Jesus. And they were in denial about their own creaturely weakness. Now, they have stuck with Jesus so far. That's true. But, no, they did not have the spiritual strength and courage within themselves to face what was coming next. Because what was coming next was something more challenging than they had faced before. And what's true for them is also true for us. We're not as spiritually strong as we think. And second thing, obeying God is often harder than we expect. One person put it this way. I'm writing about this passage. Trusting and obeying God are not default responses of disciples of Jesus, but ongoing struggles against temptation and weakness. Now there's a difference. Judas willfully betrayed Jesus and uh, never turned back. The rest of the disciples didn't plan to rebel, but they did bow to external pressure. And I think that's where many of us fall short. Right? It's not like we're sitting here in church and planning ahead, how am I going to sin later today? <laughs> right? Probably most of us, maybe even all of us, aren't thinking that way. But when the heat is on, we turn tail and run. We don't hold the fort. Obeying God is often harder than we expect. So, we're not as spiritually strong as we think. Obeying God is harder than we expect. And therefore, third application, we need to pray and depend on God far more than we realize. Verses 27 to 31, Jesus' disciples had plenty of energy to argue with him. Right? They're all boasting about their superior devotion and arguing with him. No, no, we're not going to leave you. But they didn't have enough energy to stay awake and pray for one hour when Jesus asked them to. And even after Jesus woke them up multiple times, they kept on going back to sleep. You see, the problem wasn't their energy levels. The problem was their priorities and their attitude. You know, many times Jesus' followers have plenty of energy to argue with each other, or complain, or criticize, but then we say, oh, I'm too busy to pray, or it's too hard to pray. I'm too tired to pray. And the problem is not really our energy levels. The problem is our attitude and our priorities. Now, our bodies get tired, we need sleep, and God understands that. The Bible says only God neither slumbers nor sleeps. No one's expecting all of us to stay up all night, you know, on a regular basis praying, even though some people have done that, some people do that. But that's not the requirement here. You see, the invitation is we need to recognize our absolute dependence upon God and our desperate need for His grace day by day and moment by moment. And cultivate that attitude of prayerful dependence on Him, whatever we're going through. 
You see, here's the thing. If we don't pray in the garden, when all is quiet and peaceful, and when we're surrounded by fellow disciples of Jesus, then we won't be prepared to stand firm when we're surrounded by opposition and pressure. Amen. We need to pray and depend on God far more than we realize. So those are the three things I think we should take away from the first part about the flaky disciples. But the second thing that I want us to see is the faithful Savior. All the way, Jesus Christ, the faithful Savior, leads his flaky disciples along. Now, in the beginning of this passage, verse 26 to 31, Jesus isn't surprised by their flakiness. Verse 27, he tells them about it in advance. See, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. But Jesus doesn't only tell them how they are about to fall away. In verse 28, he also promises, I will go before you. I will continue to be your faithful and merciful shepherd even after you fall. I will gather you on the other side. Jesus isn't surprised when we're flaky. And he doesn't abandon us. He goes before us and calls us to renew faithfulness on the other side. And then at the end of this passage, we see Jesus standing firm while his disciples flee. Jesus doesn't freak out when the crowd arrives. He doesn't respond in kind to their violence. Jesus stands firm, verse 48 and 49, calm and confident in the face of the crowd. But I want to focus especially on the middle section of this passage, verses 32 uh, to 42, because I think that's where we see most clearly our faithful Savior. Jesus prayed while his disciples slept. They all drift off three times, but three times Jesus prays, even when he's all alone. And even when Jesus is bearing a weight that, no, that none of the rest of his disciples could understand or share. Now, this is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus goes off by himself to pray. So he does it beginning, middle, and end of Mark. Chapter 1, chapter 6, and now here. And so, again, we see that Jesus' ministry is sort of characterized from the beginning to end by prayerful dependence on God. But look here at the words Mark uses. I mentioned them a little earlier, but uh, verse 33. Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now, the word greatly distressed can also be translated alarmed. That's how it's translated later on in Mark. Uh, I'm troubled or downcast or uh, very sorrowful even to death, overwhelmed with grief, nearly to the point of despair. These are intense words. Jesus collapses on the ground and prays, please, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Now, here's what's surprising about this description. If you read the book of Acts, and if you read the stories of early Christian martyrs, many of the early Christians endured physical torture and death with courage and confidence and even with joy. So in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Silas are put in prison in Philippi for preaching about Jesus. And it's midnight, it's the middle of the night, and what are they doing? Singing hymns. Right? They're rejoicing in the Lord. 
Or Stephen, when he's being literally stoned to death in Jerusalem. He has a glorious vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he prays that God would have mercy even on those who were stoning him. But here, Jesus is nearly overwhelmed with the apprehension of what was to come. One person wrote, I think it's accurate, nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. So here's the question, why did Jesus feel that agony and anguish? Something even more than many Christians would later feel when they were suffering deeply. Well, here's the thing. Jesus wasn't only anticipating physical pain and physical death. That's true. He was preparing for that. But he was anticipating something far more dreadful. He was willingly choosing to bear our sin and all of its horrible consequences. You see, the consequence of sin is more than physical pain and physical death. The consequence of sin is being separated from the presence of God and even having the wrath or the righteous judgment of God falling upon him. Jesus knew what Isaiah 53 said, the passage that Glenn read for us earlier, about the suffering servant who would be fierce for people's transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity, the guilt, the sin of us all. And Jesus knew that passage very well, and he knew that his calling was to be that servant, to be that sin bearer to bear our guilt on his shoulders. One person wrote this, it was not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin itself. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. That's what Jesus was anticipating here. Bearing our sin and guilt and God's righteous wrath that we deserved. You know, sometimes anticipating loss can be even more painful than the loss itself. Perhaps you've experienced that. Something that you've dreaded for a long time. And that feeling of dread can almost be more of a burden to carry than if you could just go through it and get it done over Sometimes the choice to surrender our will to God is more agonizing and painful than the suffering that might follow that choice. And that's what Jesus was wrestling with here. He was making that agonizing choice to submit his own human will to the will of his heavenly Father. He saw the cost ahead of looming ahead of him. So he prayed, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's 
Jesus honestly expressing his human will. What's Jesus' human will? Not to suffer the agony, not to suffer the beating, the torture, the slow death with the weight of the world's sin on him and the wrath of God being poured out on him. Jesus is saying if there's any other way for the mission to be accomplished, if there's any other way for people to be saved, Jesus said, I want out. If there's any other way. You know, this might remind you of a story in the Old Testament. When God told Abraham, take your son Isaac and go with him to the top of a mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice. But at the last minute, God provided a way out. And there was a ram in the thicket. And God says, don't kill your son. Kill the ram instead of him. Now, we often think about that story from the perspective of Abraham, the father. But Isaac was just as much or even more of a willing participant. Because at that point in Abraham's life, Abraham was over 100 years old. He was very, very elderly. And Isaac was a strapping young man. If they had a wrestling match, Isaac would definitely win. He could have easily overpowered his father. He could have easily run away. Isaac was not forced to go along. Isaac was a willing participant. And like Isaac, Jesus was not forced to go to the cross. He willingly chose to. And in Gethsemane, Jesus faced the fact that there would not be a ram in the thicket. There would not be a last-minute way out. There was no one else who could bear the sin of the world. Only he was the righteous one, and so only he could do it. And so he anticipated the cost, and he surrendered his human will to God's will. Not what I will, but what you will. In the early centuries of the church, especially between the 4th century and the 7th century, the leaders of the church affirmed two truths over and over again. Number one, they said Jesus is fully divine. He's the eternal Son of God. Some people were saying in those days, oh, Jesus is just the most exalted creature. And over and over, the church leaders would gather together and they would say, no, Jesus is fully divine of one substance with the Father. He's God himself. That's why he's worthy of our worship. And that's why he could call God Abba. The most intimate term for Father. That was not a common way of speaking to God in those days. Jesus had a special and intimate relationship with, his, uh, with God the Father. He's fully divine, but the second truth that the church kept on affirming over and over again against people who questioned it was that Jesus is also fully human. He took on all that is ours so that we could have all that is his. So some people in the early church said, well, we know that Jesus is fully divine, so therefore he must have been sort of like a ghost. He just appeared to have a human body. He didn't really feel pain and suffering. And the church leader said, no. The Bible says he was tired. He was hungry. And here he felt pain and agony. And so he can relate to us when we feel all those things. Because he had a real human body just like we do. He wasn't just floating through the world as a ghost. He was real. And physical. And he didn't just have a real human body, he also had a real human mind and a real human will. Yes. 
There are some people who said, oh no, Jesus had a human body, but on the inside, he only had the divine will. He didn't really have a human will. He just had sort of like a divine will planted in there. But then they, then they read this passage, and they said, oh yes, he does have a human will, because he says, not what I will, but what you will. That doesn't make any sense if he doesn't have a human will. But what he's doing here is he's bringing his human will in submission, in surrender to God's will. In his humanity, verse 36 says, he didn't want to suffer the agony of the cross. The prospect of enduring the cross nearly overwhelmed him. And so he prayed, expressing his human will honestly to God, remove this cup from me. But then in the next sentence he says, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus redeemed our whole self, our body, mind, and will. And he redeemed our human will by bringing it into full conformity with God's will. You see, Jesus came to save every part of us, to redeem every part of who we are. Our bodies, our minds, our wills, our emotions too. Look at the emotions Jesus felt here throughout his life. See, of course, this is the path that we are called to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. There are many times when we desperately want relief from an unwanted burden. There will be times when we feel greatly distressed, alarmed, troubled, overwhelmed with grief, maybe even collapsing on the ground. And in those moments, we can do as Jesus did. We can honestly express our human will to God in prayer and say, Lord, remove this from me. Grant me some relief here. I need, I really, really desire to be released from this burden. But Jesus also, and sometimes God answers that prayer with a yes, like he did with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. A way out was made at the last minute. Sometimes we don't have to go through what we dread we might have to go through. But other times we must. Other times God doesn't take it away. And when we have to keep going, our faithful Savior has gone ahead of us on that path. He knows how difficult it is to surrender a fully human will to God's will. What he endured here was something far more harrowing than we will ever be able to fully or even nearly appreciate. But he knows that agony and anguish of surrendering our will to, to the Lord's. He's our faithful Savior. He's gone ahead before us on that path. And he's the best friend and advocate that you could ever have. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that despite the flakiness of your disciples, that you are such a faithful Savior. We thank you that you are not surprised when we fall short and when our self-confidence 
quickly vanishes under pressure. We pray that you would forgive us for where we have fallen short, for where we have sinned. We pray, we thank you that you promised to your disciples to gather them together, to continue to be their kind and merciful shepherd, even after they all fell away. Thank you for gathering us to yourself. Thank you for going ahead of us on that road of surrendering our will to yours. Help us to follow you by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us. And to walk in that way of prayerful dependence on you and surrender to you in whatever you call us to. Praise in your holy name. Amen.